Praise God. So this morning, I want to talk about uh, something that I think that we all deal with in, in this, this society particularly, but it's conflicting reports. You know, the title is Conflicting Reports, Whose Report Are You Going to Believe? Because the truth is, there's always two reports. There's a report of God, what God's Word says and what He has to say about your life, but there's always another report that's coming, a report from the enemy, the report from this world that's saying something completely opposite. And this, this world is filled with conflicting reports. I mean, right now, if you look at the news, someone was telling me that the stock market just dropped another 2,000 points or something like that. It's like 15, 2,000 points down from just a few weeks ago, I think, or even months ago. I'm not sure of the timing. Don't ask me all those questions. I don't follow the stock market. But it's, it's dropping again, you know, and we're having this economic crisis again. There's always something that says this world is falling apart, and that's the negative report. But the Word of God says it'll never leave you or forsake you, and that He even takes care of, of the, the, the sparrows in the field who don't, who don't uh, sow or reap, but He still takes care of them. And how much more so will He take care of you? You know, and then we have a lot of health reports that come in, and we have God. We just spent the last four weeks talking about God wanting you to be healed and to be well, and then He has a good health report for your life, but then we have the complete opposite coming from doctors and the enemy and, and sometimes even ourselves. We begin to look at ourselves and, and tell us a negative report. And then we have what the Bible says about our worth and, and God considered us so worthy that he traded in the life of his son so that he could have us. But how often do we have people at school or people at our work that are talking down to us or talking bad to us and they begin to tell us a different idea of our worth? And especially for the kids in schools these days, if you don't fit to that perfect mold, then they're constantly telling you how bad you are and, 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 and talking trash about you and calling you names and always conflicting reports. And even in our, our very own righteousness, you know, the Bible says that if we have Jesus, that we are made righteous and, and our sins are as far as the east is to the west. But how often when, when we do stumble, even though the Bible says that the righteous man falls in seven times but gets back up seven times, how, how often do you have the enemy instantly begin to attack you and begin to tell you that you're not righteous? That look what you did, you can't be clean, you can't be pure, constantly conflicting reports. In Ephesians 6.12 it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're always going to have conflicting reports because we are in a war. Whether you want to be one or not, there's the enemy that's constantly attacking the people of God, not because he can defeat them, but because if he can convince you otherwise, if he can get you to, to believe what he says, to believe his report, then he can drag you down with him. Because he is already defeated, but he can bring you with him. If he can just get you to believe his report and not God's. So today, I want to go ahead and uh, begin to look at the, the story. It's probably, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard the story of Joshua and Caleb and the, when they went to spy out the land. And there was the good report and the bad report. So we begin in verse 13, Numbers verse thir chapter 13, verses 1 through 2. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. So we begin to see that in this life, we do need to assess our situation. We do need to take a look at what's going on in our life. There is wisdom in going out and looking at what's going on. 
Um, familiar with this story? God has given the Israelites the promised land. He just rescued them out of Egypt. They've seen dozens of miracles. I mean, they saw all this stuff happen to the Egyptians, and they saw the sea parted, and now they're going to the promised land. God has promised them a land that is flowing with milk and honey that they can live and they can prosper. And they're getting there, and God says, Moses, go ahead and send some people out so they can take a look at the land and, and see what they're going to see. And then in Numbers 13, 17 through 20, and this, the, the verses 2 through 17 are basically just Moses listing out the names of all the spies. There's 12 spies, one from each tribe of the nations of Israel. And then he says, When Moses sent them to spy out the land, verse 17, of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there to Negev, and then up the hill country. See what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good? Or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time, now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. So Moses is sending them out to just take a look at what's actually going on. And in our lives, when we, when we live in our lives, it's not unwise to assess your situations. Because the truth is, are you, if you're having some money difficulties, that's a fact. There's nothing, I mean, there's, the reality is that, that if you don't have enough money to pay the bill, you don't have that money right this second. So it's not unwise to take assessment of your situation. You know, if, if you have a, an illness in your body, if you're sick, it's not unwise to recognize that you have that. The difference is, is, is do you accept that about your life? Do you accept that as set in stone, or do you understand what God has to say uh, about your life? It's, it's wisdom to take a look at what you're getting and heading into. It's kind of like you know when, uh, if, did you guys play sports in high school and, and always before the game they would, they would set up the tape and you would watch the other team's games to kind of see what they were doing. Now we did this not so we could see how tough the other team was, not so we could scare ourselves and intimidate ourselves and not even be willing to face them. We did this to, to be wise in what we were going to do. So we had a plan, so we went there with, uh, with wisdom in what we were going to be doing. That's why we had these, these tapes, these training tapes that we would watch. And, and that's why we do these things. And that's what God's having them, having them do here. Go out, take a look, use your five senses. You know, the five senses we have. Look at, look at it, taste it, see it. It says go and find some of the fruit because uh, the fruit should be in, in season right now. And, and check it out. Use your senses to check it out and understand it. Just don't let your senses overrule you. And we're going to go and look at the story and see what actually happens. Do they do the wise thing or not? then we go to verse thir- chapter, Numbers chapter 13, verse 21 through 24. And it says, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rehob at Labohamath. And when they had gone up to Negev, they came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Shesh... Yeah, you can read that, those cities. The descendants of Anak were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. That word Eshkol literally translates to cluster. I mean, they're spying out this land. 
And they're, they're, I mean, they're, this is a good land. They're seeing everything. This, this place, I mean, there's some people that live there, but they're looking at the fruit. These grapes are so big. I mean, can you imagine? I, we, I go to the store, and I buy a clump of grapes, and you know, you get a little basket like this, and not much going on there. I mean, uh, if you get a big clump of grapes, you know, they're, they're pretty. But these were so big that they had to take two men, hang it from a pole, and carry it between two men. I mean, this land is good. And that's why, they, I mean, this, this cluster of grapes makes such an impact on these men that they name this place the Valley of Cluster. The Valley of the Cluster of Grapes. I mean, this, these things are huge. You know, so they, they spy out the land and they begin to see a glimpse of the promise of God in their lives. They begin to, to see what's going on in their lives and what's going to happen for them. They begin to see this land and... Uh, that's often how it is in our walk with God. We, we have an opportunity. We, we hear the promises of God for our lives, and we begin to look forward, and, and we see things that are looking good. We get a small glimpse of what God has to offer for us. I remember, for me, I, at, uh, my dad, he has, he has psoriasis. And it's, uh, I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's kind of a skin condition. that, uh, And he used to get real bad on his elbows and his hair. And, and I have that too. It's, it's a hereditary thing that's been passed down. Or I had that. And uh, I would get it in my head. And if, if I didn't wash my hair with a special shampoo, then uh, the, the scales of this, this, this skin condition would begin to... Uh, to kind of grow up and it would just be itchy and, and what it is is uh, it's an overactive immune system. My body is actually attacking my skin because it's trying to protect itself from itself, I guess. So, um, you know, and I've, I've been trusting God. I've been believing God for, for healing. So I've been praying about it and I have a vision for healing. I have a small taste and sometimes it would kind of tone down and then come back up, always using the medicine. And it's kind of like these guys, you know, they, they, had, a, they had a promise from God and I have a promise from God that I, that I could be whole and well. And I begin to see little bits of it. They go out to the land and they see little bits of this promise and it looks good. And I know for me, I began to see bits of this promise and it was going good and then it would act up. But then one day God comes to me and he tells me, and, and I feel this very clearly in my spirit, he says, stop using the medicated shampoo. And I'm like, yes, I'm getting healed. So I stopped using it. And wouldn't you know, it goes crazy. I mean, it's not better. It's, my head is like on fire because of all this crap. And I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, and I, I went like a week and I'm like, I can't handle this. And we're going to see kind of a similar thing with these people as we go on is, is I get this report from my head that says, no, you're not healed. I get this bad report that says, no, you know, God says you're healed, but you're not. Look at your head. You feel it. It itches. There's scales. It's bad. And, and about a week later, I'm like, and this is nonsense. I'm using the shampoo again. And I pick up the, and I put it in and I begin washing my hair and I feel God telling me. I, I feel, he says, I told you not to use the shampoo. And I'm like, yeah, but look what's going on. I'm like, all right, God, I'm going to trust you. And, I, and I, I put it down, and I never used it again since then. And I haven't had an issue with it in my head ever since because I had a, I had a, I had a promise from God, and instantly the bad report comes. You know, I got a, a small glimpse, and I begin to see it, and then the bad reports come. But it was when ultimately that I trusted God even through the bad report, in spite of the bad report, in spite of my own body telling me that, I was, that God was wrong. When I began to trust him, I began to see a change. And it's the same thing here. We get a taste of what's good and the tough times come. So let's go ahead and take a look at these, these tough times. 
So as we continue the rest of the story in Numbers 13, 25 through 27, it says, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. So they were out there for 40 days checking this place out, getting a good view of it, their understanding what's going on. They got the rest of the congregation back at... Uh, waiting for them, the, the rest of the Israelites waiting for them to hear what's going on. And uh, so as they proceeded to come out to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. The fruit of the land. What do you think the congregation was hoping to hear? You ever get a, a promise from God, you begin to read the word and you think it's just going to be all lollipops and cotton candy? You know, you see the promise of God for your life, and, and you're like, yeah, God's promises, so we're just going to show up, and the people are going to go running, the land's going to be ours, there's going to be no opposition. You know, the devil's not going to come against me because I have a promise from God. I think sometimes that's how we feel in our lives. We, we say that God's promised us something, and, and we maybe think that, you know, once I become a Christian, I will never have difficulties again. But it's just not true. The enemy's going to come against you. Matter of fact, Jesus said that if you are a Christian, you will have difficulties. If you follow me, you're going to have persecution. You're going to have the enemy come against you. And then on top of that, the word of, the God, the word of God says that the, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. You know, we have natural disasters in this country, and that hits Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, there's always going to be opposition of some sort that we have to come up against with our faith. And then it says, Thus they told them that we went to the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk, honey, and this is its fruit. So they come back, and this place is great. And they got this huge thing of fruit. They brought around the figs and the pomegranates, and, and the grapes are huge. And like, check this place out. It's flowing with milk and honey. And milk and honey, does that sound weird to anybody else? What does that mean, we're flowing with milk and honey? You know, and I started looking into it, and, and really it was just them trying to tell them that it flows with milk. Milk was the, the byproduct of, of the men's, uh, the men's uh, livestock. You know, basically, the saying that it was filled with milk means this is a place that we can raise our livestock and we'll always have this, uh, this blessing produced by what we tend. You know, so this is a good place for us to tend our, our livestock, and, and we're going to get that. And then we talk about honey. Honey was a natural product. Natural, you know, honey was something that grew out in the, in the land. So not only is this place a grace place for us to, to raise our livestock and reap the benefit of our livestock, but it's also naturally resource rich. It's also got natural resources that we can affect. This, this land is awesome. And the truth is, this, this starts out well enough. Could you imagine if they would have just stopped there? and not told the rest of the story. They just said, yeah, this place is awesome. Just like God said, it's full of milk and honey. Let's go take possession of it. But that's not how it starts. Matter of fact, you begin to see a little bit of the negativity in the report just in the beginning. It says, we went into the land where you sent us. Immediately, they begin to place the blame on Moses in the congregation. You sent us to this land. When the truth was that God sent them to this land. They already began to shift the blame on somebody because they know that there's a negative portion of their report coming. So as we continue on in Numbers uh, 13, 28 through 29, it says, Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and are very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of, of Anak there. You know, the sons of Anak, they were giants. They were literally giants, seven to nine feet tall. Goliath was one of the sons of Anak. 
So these are big dudes, and they're all like that. They live there. These giants live in this land. We can't have this land. There's something bad there. And something I want to point out is, is uh, something I know my pastors always told me is, is when you're reading the Word, you've got to make sure your butts are in the right places. Because when you're reading the Word, a lot of times you'll read Paul begin to start off with this negative thing like, you know, these people don't get into heaven, swindlers and, and stealers and adulterers and thieves and, and, and idolaters, and they don't get into heaven. But, Paul always says, but, we are concerned of greater things concerning you. You have to have your butt in the right place, right? They have it backwards here. They start out with all the good stuff, and here's their but, nevertheless, but, same word, right? Everything's great, but these horrible people live there. They got their butt in the wrong place. They should have flipped this around. Yeah, there's some opposition there, but this is the land that God promised. So it says, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. I mean, this is some surmountable odds that they're looking at. God has told them that this land is theirs. He's giving it to them. That, that he's got this place made out for them. But it's already occupied by people that have usurped authority. This wasn't those people's lands, but they took the opportunity when it was empty to take it over. And I mean, there's, what do we got here? One, two, three, four, five different people groups that live there. This is, this is like going into to, uh, a, a, a nation, a continent, or an area, and there's five different countries that already live there, and you have to, to claim what's rightfully yours. You know, they're claiming this land that's rightfully theirs. So, you know, naturally, they're going to feel a little bit of fear. This is, this is a, a surmountable obstacle that they need to overcome. So the question is, what takes precedence? Do you trust what God said that it's yours, or do you begin to look at the situation and let fear develop in your heart? So let's go ahead and take a look at uh, what the people of Israel actually did. In Numbers 13, 30 through 33, it says, Then Caleb, who was one of the spies that was sent, quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome of it. <laughs> I find this funny. It says he quieted the people. He's actually talking to the congregation. Because, you know, if you look at, uh, who is it? what is his name? Adam Clark. He was written commentaries to the Bible. He was a Methodist commentator. And, uh, but he said that we don't have the exact number of uh, the amount of people that, were at, that came across into the wilderness. But... The numbers that we do have in doing some calculations, because the numbers in the Bible are just the men over 20 ready for war. So there was women and children, and the priests weren't counted, the Levites weren't counted as part as the men of war. But they roughly figure there's 3 million people that came out of Egypt. The Exodus was about 3 million people. And that's a lot of people. I mean, Tucson has a million people in it. Three times the amount of Tucson are all gathered around following Moses. And he's he says he's quieting the people. They came back to talk to the congregation, and I got this picture in my head of trying to quiet three million people. Sometimes I can't quiet all you guys long enough to get worship started, let alone three million people. And, you know, that, it really brings another... Do you remember the story when, when Moses taps the rock and the, the water comes out? How do you see that in your head? What do you picture when he taps the rock and water comes out? I pictured like a water fountain. You know, everyone came up and took a drink. There's three million people there. Do you know how long it would take three million people to drink out of a water fountain? Moses had to have caused a river <laughs> to come out of that rock for three million people to drink. 
but that's a side note. I just I just remember someone bringing that up, and I just yeah, that's, that's that must have been a river that came out of that rock to, to let three million people drink. <laughs> so, so now we have Caleb, and and we'll find that Caleb and Joshua are the two that believe God, and the, the other ten spies don't. But Caleb quiets the people before Moses and said, "We should by all means go up and take possession of it." I want you to notice he says, take possession of it. He doesn't say, let's go up and fight for it. Let's go up and do our best to try to get this land. He says, let's take possession of it. Caleb recognized that God had already given them this land. Victory was assured. There wasn't, there wasn't the, the possibility that we had to fight for it and overcome it, but there wasn't this possibility that we could lose it. It's, he says, for we will surely overcome it. God has given it to us. Let's take possession of what is already ours. And I want you to, to remember in our lives as we come up and we get these conflicting reports that we're not fighting for what God said. We are taking possession of what God has already given to us. We're not fighting to try to beat the devil. We're putting him in his place because the devil is already defeated. We are taking possession of what is already ours when we look at the reports in our lives. And how do we take possession of it? By just believing what the Word of God says in our lives. By trusting that he is true. But in verse 31 it says, But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So these are the other ten spies. They're like, Caleb, you're crazy. Did you see those people? Have you ever, have you ever felt like that when, when you got insurmountable odds coming to you and you go talk to the pastor and the pastor's like, No, it's going to be okay. Trust God. And you're like, Are you serious? Like, Do you see what's going on in my life? I've been like that before when you, you know you should trust God, but, but this fear is so overwhelming. You look at your situation, and sometimes it feels hopeless. And if you look away from God for a second, it feels hopeless, and it's so much harder to put your, your eyes back on Him. And it says, So they gave out to the, son of Is, the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. They also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, a part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in our sight. Now these are the same guys that just said, this is a land flowing with milk and honey, and now they're like, oh wait, we changed our mind. This is a land that devours its inhabitants. You know, the more that they turn their eyes away from God, the worse the bad report got. The more they dwelled on it, the more that they let it influence their decisions, and they begin to forget the promise of God completely, and all they can think about is the terrible stuff that's going on. And then we find, and this verse has probably been preached on a million times, but we're going to do it one more time. It says, and we became like grasshoppers. You know, grasshoppers, to us, that would be like saying... They were little shrimps. They came like shrimps. You know, it's, it's something that, you know, a little shrimp is not even big enough for a meal. Like, you can't have just one shrimp and be full. I mean, that's what he's saying. These, if we go against these men, we're going to be like grasshoppers. They actually ate grasshoppers back then. They, that was part of their diet. And they're like, they're going to be like, we're going to be like grasshoppers. They're just going to eat us. You know, they're just going to chow us down, and it won't even be a full meal. We're done for. We have no chance. But the important thing that we look at this is we became grass -like grasshoppers in what? In our own sight. You notice he doesn't say that we met up with the giants and they looked at us like grasshoppers. He says we became grasshoppers in our own sight. This is how these people viewed themselves. They didn't view themselves as, as overwhelming conquerors through, through God. They didn't, they didn't look back and say, you know what? 
we just left Egypt and God was with us and God took care of the entire army and everybody that we've came up against, God has been with us and we will overcome. They said, no, we, we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and what was the result? And so we were in their sight. You know, how we view ourselves is awesome. Awesome. <laughs> is also... <laughs> There's my one for today. <laughs> how we view ourselves is, is also, yeah, how I view myself is awesome. <laughs> how we view ourselves is also how, how the enemy is going to view us. You know, it, it's, it's kind of like that, uh, the story when, when those, uh, those priests were saying, we cast you out in the name of Jesus who, who Paul adjures. And the, the, de- the demons were like, well, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? And they came out and they stripped them all naked and beat them. And now they got the priest running around naked because they got overtaken by these, these demon-possessed men. And in much the same way, these people, these, men, these, these priests that came, they didn't see themselves as one with Jesus. They didn't see themselves as, as victorious and conquerors and overcomers. They were like trying to use Jesus off to the side. And because they didn't see themselves as, as who they should have saw themselves as, if they would have really embraced who they were in Christ... They would have had no issue. But because they didn't, the demons saw them just as they saw themselves. The same here. They were like grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. You know, and truthfully, sometimes not only do we, do we see ourselves small in the, the sight of our obstacles, but do you ever feel yourself small even in the sight of God? Have you ever felt like maybe God doesn't know what you're going through, or maybe God just doesn't... I'm just not good enough for God to really care about me. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm nothing to God. Who am I? I'm just somebody that's done stupid stuff in my life. And you begin to feel small in God's sight too. But I want you to know that, that you're never small to God. He cares about each and every one of us so passionately. It's like, I mean, Jesus used several metaphors uh, when he was talking about, you know, when, when, a, when a shepherd loses one of his sheep he drops everything to go find that one lost sheep. And when he finds it, he rejoices for even one individual sheep. And in the same way, God feels the same way about us. And we never have to feel small in our sight. We have to remember that he knows us by name. That he even knew us before we were in our mother's womb. Like, like uh, he tells Jeremiah. I mean, he knows who we are. He loves us. And we're never small in his sight. And we can take confidence and comfort in that. And we see in Romans 8.31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? This should be our battle cry. If God is on your side, nothing can touch you. Nothing can impact you. The Bible says that, uh, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Because we have God on our side, we are strong in Him. And then in Romans 8.37, it says, But in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. We are victorious and conquerors in Jesus Christ. If you have him in his life, there is nothing that can stand against you. And what do we overwhelmingly conquer through? It says, but in all these things. And if we look at Romans 8.35, a couple verses before it, it says, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That's what he's talking about. This is what we overwhelmingly overwhelmingly conquer. This is... That covers just about everything. Tribulations, distresses, persecution, famine, you know, lacking in stuff, nakedness, peril, or the sword. 
everything, we overwhelm, over, that is a hard word to say over and over, overwhelmingly conquer. John Gardner, he was a political figure, and he said this about the political arena. Arena. He said, we are continually faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as insoluble problems. You know, that can be applied to our lives as Christians as well. You know, we, we are continually faced with a series of great opportunities, opportunities to put our faith in Jesus, opportunities to put all of our trust in him and not let the enemy take us away from God. And it says that these are brilliantly disguised as insoluble problems. Sometimes obstacles that appear to be completely unconquerable, completely unovercomable, if we would just put our trust in God, we can make it through them. Amen? So let's continue on with the story in, in uh, Numbers 14, verse 1 through 4. It says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept in that night. Can you imagine three million people weeping and crying all at the same time? And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, What, that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? to fall by the sword. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Grumbling has incredibly terrible consequences. Grumbling. Have you ever worked at a, at a place where there's people that are always complaining about the job or the leadership and it's toxic. If you've ever, even if you're not okay with it, you, it begins to creep in on you, and you're like, "Yeah, maybe that is bad," and you, and you realize it's not, but it begins to infect your your very attitude. And, and if the whole place is like that, it becomes an awful place to work. I've worked at places like that where I didn't want to go in because the attitude there was so negative about everything. It'll literally destroy a workflow, a flow a workforce. It'll destroy a a school. It'll destroy a congregation. I mean, a church can be destroyed if there's constant grumbling and complaining and whining. And these guys are complaining so bad that they pretty much talk themselves into preferring to go back to Egypt. They actually prefer, like, oh man, I wish we'd have died somewhere else. I mean, they're, they're, they're talked themselves into such a, a, a lather that they're like, man, I would rather just die elsewhere. I don't want to die here. Why couldn't we have died in Egypt when everything was horrible? They, they completely forgot what Egypt was like. Because the fear of this new thing coming made them, made them complete. All they remembered was, oh, we were kind of comfortable. We were kind of safe. We, we kind of had a place to live. And, but they forgot how bad it was in Egypt. And then they said, oh, okay, well, let's go ahead and uh, let's appoint us another leader and return to Egypt. I mean, these guys are, are so scared about what's coming on that they completely forgot what happened in Egypt. First off... They, a lot of bad stuff happened to Pharaoh. You remember all the plagues, everything that happened to him? I mean, can you imagine him going, like, like the prodigal son, come on back, guys. I mean, the Pharaoh's a little bit ticked off of what happened. Not only did he have all these bad things happen, he finally kicks him out of Egypt, says, fine, go, changes his mind, sends his whole army after him, and then the whole army dies. I mean, the, the Egypt was devastated because God was freeing them from the, the captivity and the oppression that they were under. And they forget that, and they think that, that maybe Pharaoh's just going to let them come back in and, and become bosom buddies. I mean, Pharaoh's going to kill them if they go back. So they begin to, to, uh, to not trust God. 
And it's almost like, you know, when they say, well, let's find another leader and return to Egypt. We don't like what you're doing, Moses. It's almost kind of like choosing your church by like the, the Build-A-Bear method. You know, they go into Build-A-Bear and you get to pick the stuffing and the casing and the, the, uh, the outfit and you get to pick everything to, to build this bear. And they kind of have this idea that's what church is going to be like. That's what our congregation is going to be like. Let's just pick the stuff that we want. You know, yeah, this whole uh, lying thing, we're okay with lying, so we're not going to listen to the thou shall not lie. Yeah, we don't like stealing, so we'll, we'll pick that part out. We'll go with that. And, and uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to trust God, but we want His promises. And it's this kind of, of, of build-your-own-church mentality that they're having. But there's consequences to these actions. So then Moses, in verses Numbers 14, 5 through 10, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the con- congregation of the sons of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, are of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. Because, you know, I've talked about tearing your clothes before. I think it's just a hilarious practice. But I was reading more about it, and they would, they would actually literally tear the little pieces of their clothes to show it was just a, a way that they showed grief or they showed um, uh, dishonor or shame. And that's these guys, Aaron and Moses and Joshua, they're, they're actually shamed by the way the congregation is acting. They're feeling dishonored, and, and they're feeling great grief. They're like, God, have you guys not seen what God's done for us? Why are you acting this way? And it says, they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. See, they had it right. They understood that this land was a fantastic land, that God's promises are true. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of their land, for they will be our prey. You know, the Bible says the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. We're going to look at that verse in a moment. But he says, do not, do not fear what's coming up. God is with us. And if God is with us, who can be against us? And their protection has been removed for them. You know, God will actually remove the protection of this, this stuff that's coming against you that it can't stand if you'll trust in him. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear him. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of the meeting to all the sons of Israel. The congregation was so scared that they wanted to kill them for trying to get them to trust God. You know, and it's... Fear is, is such a, a strange thing. And we all feel it. We all understand it. But if you take a second to step back from fear and what it actually is, fear is ultimately... Um, being worried about something that might happen, that could happen, you know, and and we let it overcome even stuff that is that is guaranteed in Christ. I mean, God promises these things, and they are guaranteed because God cannot lie, and we forget that and begin to be so afraid of what might happen. You know, uh, we're afraid these days to let our children play in the street. A lot of places, kids. Uh, Men and women won't even, parents won't even let their children go outside and play at all because they're so scared of what might happen. They might fall, they might skin their knee, and they, they, they kind of let fear run their lives. Somebody could steal them. There's all these things. And I'm not saying don't have wisdom like we talked about in the beginning. You need to assess your situation and have wisdom, but don't let fear completely overtake your lives and all your faculties and let it control what you do. But I find interesting, it says they want to stone these guys. 
They actually want to kill Joshua and Caleb for saying, for following God. You know, I think a lot of times that it's so easy for, uh, for us when we walk by, by sight and we don't walk by faith, it's so easy for us to turn against the one we love, turn against those that are actually trying to help us, turn against those who are trying to encourage us. And just like these guys did, because of their fear, they turned against the ones, I mean, Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, they wanted what was best for this congregation. They wanted these three million people to inhabit what God had promised for them. And they wanted the best for them. And these people wanted to stone them. So I, I would remind you, too, that if you're ever in a situation like that when, and you're surmount, facing surmountable odds to, to recognize the godly men and women who would have wise counsel and not turn against them, but actually embrace what they have to say and let it encourage your faith. Amen? In 2 Timothy 1, verses 7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity or spirit of fear, but of power and love. And discipline. Fear is never given by God. It says God has not given us a spirit of fear. When you feel fear in your life, that's coming from somewhere else. But what does God give us? He gives us a, a, a spirit of power. You know, power is, is the tools that God gives us in the Holy Spirit to, to operate without fear, to overcome our fear. When we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we're working, we're operating as ambassadors of God, and we are operating in His full authority. We have the Holy Spirit behind us and backing us up. That's what God has given us, a spirit of power. And He's given us a spirit of love as well. The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fears, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And why does perfect love cast out all fears? Because the one who loves us, which is God, is, is loving us with a perfect love. And he's loving us with a love that holds us. And I know especially uh, women will understand this. But when you're with your husband, you feel safe. You feel secure when you're in his arms. You feel like that he is going to take care of you. And that's the same love that we have from God. It's his arms are wrapped around us. We can feel safe and secure in his arms. He is, our, he is our rock. He is our shield. He is our protector. He's our provider. And in his arms, we can feel safe. And finally, he says he's given us a spirit of discipline. You guys have ever heard the, the quote, and I don't remember who said it, but it says, courage is not the lack of fear, but the triumph over it. You know, the truth is that sometimes fear is going to try to creep into our lives. But... God has given us the ability to deal with that. If we will discipline ourselves to, to trust Him, if we will make it that when these opportunities come, come to us, it's like when we begin to discipline our children and teach them a certain way, we want them to understand. You know, we teach our kids about drugs, and we begin to discipline them that way. We begin to teach them and give them a discipline, an attitude about drugs, so that we hope that when they come against that in their lives without us, that they already have a frame of mind to withstand that peer pressure and to make the right decision. And the same with us. God has given us a spirit of discipline so when we come up against those obstacles, we can triumph over that fear and make the correct decision. Amen? So as we keep going, we come to Numbers 14, 20 through 24. It says, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. So what has happened here is in the fuses of few verses before this, um, God says, you know what? If these people don't want to trust me, then, then fine. I'll let them wander out there and they, they can all die if they want to trust me. They're going to come up against all the stuff that I've been protecting them from, um, plagues and sickness. You know, if, if they don't want to trust me, fine. Let them have their own way. And God's ready to, he's ready to turn their back on them. 
but Moses and Aaron begin to, to pray to God, and Moses cries out to God and says, God, if you do that, then what will the rest of these people think? The Egyptians are going to think that you rescued them, but you couldn't do what you said you would do, that you weren't powerful enough. And it's not that God couldn't do what he wanted to do. It's these people wouldn't trust him. He says, what about the people that are in this land, these giants? If, if everyone dies, then uh, you know, what are they going to say? They're going to say that, that uh, you're not a real God, that you couldn't do what you said you are going to do. Now you have to understand in this time when, when nations went to war, you know, they brought their gods with them. Whoever the God that they served was the God that was backing them up. And if you went to war trusting a God and you were defeated and everyone was killed, they would just toss that God to the wayside. If, if the God wasn't powerful enough to get them through that situation, then uh, he wasn't worthy of, of worshiping them or trusting him. And, and they would just, they would toss off their, their gods. Now, it's easy to do with a false god. Of course, these false gods weren't with them because these false gods are no, no gods at all. But in this case, the way these people thought, if they saw that, then they would never come to God. They would never trust God as being the God of all. They would never see him as the one and only God. So Moses intercedes for the people. And God says, all right, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. Ten times Israel tried to turn against God, even though they saw these incredible signs. It says, They shall, be, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit, he had a different attitude about him, and he has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. You know, this, this idea here is, is we find that, as we read in the story further on, is that Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb are the only two out of all these that make it into to the, uh, to the promised land. Even Moses doesn't make it, because later on he tests God. And God says, I'll let you see it, but you won't enter it as well. Aaron dies in the wilderness. I mean, they all end up dying in the wilderness of, these, of the men above 20 who had this promise of God, but because they wouldn't trust God, they limited God's ability to bring them into the promised land. They, they wouldn't trust him, so they didn't make it. And the truth is that there's, there's consequences in our lives for not trusting God. And I'm quick to point out, and I've told you guys before, is consequences are not the same as punishment. God is not going to smack you for, for not trusting him. But there are consequences because the blessing that God has for your life will not be able to f be fulfilled in your life if you won't trust him. And that's the consequences they faced. These, these, the Israel faced the consequence of not being able to enter the promised land because they wouldn't trust him. In Jeremiah 29.11, it says, For I know the plans that I have for you. The truth is, we all have our own promised lands. We all have a plan that God has for our life. And the question is, do you trust God to fulfill that plan in your life? Or are we going to not trust him and not be able to have that fulfilled in our life? It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity. You know, and, and we've talked about before, this plans for welfare is, is for you to fare well. It's not plans for, 
for you to be just well enough off that someone always has to help you and give you stuff. But this is for you to be to living with with your own under your own means, and He's going to provide for you, and not for calamity. You know, God doesn't have plans for you to. It's not a, His plan for you to go through hard times. And He says that will give you a future and a hope, and we all have a hope in Christ. And we have a plan for our life by God. We're not saved in a void. We're not, not saved in a void. We're not saved to do nothing. Matter of fact, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created for good works. We're not saved by good works, but that is why we are created. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared stuff for us to do beforehand. And then in Jeremiah 1.5, uh, this prophet that we're dealing with here, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. I want to know, want you to know, each and every one of you in this room, that God knew you even before you were born. And he had a plan for your life even before you were born. And he always has, and everybody that we see in this earth, God has a plan for them to impact a city, another person. To He has a plan for their life. And truthfully, there's, there's tons of men and women that, that aren't saved, that refuse to, give their, life to, lot, to the, give their life to the Lord, who will never experience God's plan for their life even a little bit. And even worse than that, there's Christians who have given their life to the Lord, but only have given a portion so they have a taste of what God wants for their life, but they'll never experience it fully because they won't trust Him fully. But God has great plans for us. He has, we each have our own promise land. If we'll just trust Him, then He will give us a future and give us hope. Amen? The last verse we're going to look at, the last verses, are Joshua 14, 7 through 11. And this is uh, Caleb speaking. And he's talking to Joshua. As you know, Joshua was uh, the predecessor. Joshua, the son of Nun, was the predecessor to Moses. When Moses couldn't lead them into the promised land, Joshua took them in. And now this is Caleb, who was the, the only one that made it, besides Joshua, into the promised land of all of the, the Israelites that came out of the Exodus in, in Egypt. This is of all the men that, were, men that were 20 and older, basically anybody who was ready to go to war, anybody who was old enough to make a decision for themselves, to trust God for themselves and didn't, were not allowed in. It says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up for me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. You know, God kept his promise to Caleb who trusted him. Even when the rest of Israel didn't, to Joshua and Caleb, he kept his promises. You know what? You're going to enter the promised land because that was promised to you and you grabbed hold of it by faith. And the interesting thing is, though, this guy has been walking around in the desert for 40 years with the rest of the Israelites. It says, Now behold, the Lord God has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years. From that time, the Lord spoke this word to Moses. And when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old. And we're like, man, sure, he got his promise from God, but he's 85 years old. How much can he do with it? I mean, at that point, walking with the cane, 
I'm going to go get my land that God promised. That's, that's not what happened. It says, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. God kept his strength, 85 years old, and he looked as good as me. Can you believe that? <laughs> and it says, my strength was so then, was, was, is, as my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. He was still ready to go take possession of the land, of the, the, the land that God had already given him. And if you look, he still had to drive out the inhabitants of that land. And God was with him. And he was just as strong as he was back then. And he was able to inherit his promise. And I find it interesting that I told you there was somewhere around 3 million people uh, that were with the, the Israelites that came out of Egypt. And using those same numbers, they've, they've roughly calculated that a million, like a million two people were supposed to go into the promised land and didn't make it. 1.2 million people died before they were able to receive the promise of God because they refused to believe who he was. That's a lot of people that died in those 40 years. Now I want you to know that they weren't forsaken by God. That they weren't left destitute and to die. Even when they weren't trusting God and they didn't experience the full promise, he still took care of them. He sent manna out every morning, which was the manna was the Hebrew word for what is it? They didn't know what it was, but they fed them every morning and they ate. And he sent quails in the afternoon and they ate. And it says, the Bible says that the clothes never wore out and the shoes never wore out. And it actually, the clothes grew with the kids. As the kids were growing up, the shoes grew with them because they never wore out and they, they never had, I mean, God took care of them. I mean, can you, how awesome would that be? if we didn't have to buy our kids clothes and they grew with them. I'll tell you what, if somebody could patent that, I'd be on it. But God took care of them. They didn't have a bad life. They had everything they needed. Even, even still, God loved them and never forsake them. It was with them. But the question is, do we want to experience the least of what God has for us, or do we want to experience the most of what God has for us? I would encourage all of us to always trust God. And when, when the world comes at us with a different report that says, no, that's not how it is, this is how it is, we can stand with authority and with confidence in saying, no, it's how God says it is. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.